Speaking of racism, I could go in a lot of directions for today's show, but it is the day that our country has set aside to honor the life, work, and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So I would like to take some time out to acknowledge that and share some thoughts on this as I go into part two of my conversation with Noah Lomax. And the reason I've decided to put these two together is because Noah and I will start talking about and unpacking our perspectives and our perceptions on racism in the North versus the South in today's episode. We only briefly touch on it, and and there's a lot for me to learn. I've actually ordered a book since I had the conversation with Noah that we're putting on the list of the 12 books to read in 12 months on dismantling white supremacy. So earlier today, I took my kids to the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History here in Detroit, and they had an event for MLK Day. And my kids and I got to sit in an auditorium and just watch the footage from when he started to when things ended in his lifetime and in his work as a civil rights activist. And it was really awesome to watch hours and hours of footage from, it looks like probably from the Library of Congress or something to that effect. And when we walked away from that, my kids and I started talking about things. I asked them, what were three things that you learned that you didn't know about Dr. King? And both of them said they didn't realize that he had so many speeches or that he was a part of so many marches or that even the march from Selma to Montgomery took three attempts. So, I mean, my kids are eight years old. I'm teaching them. We're talking through all of this stuff, and they've got time to learn. But it's interesting that even in their young years, they really only learned about the I Have a Dream speech. And the thing about the I Have a Dream speech is it's very easy, in a sense. It's very comfortable. It makes people feel good to pontificate about someday when little boys and little girls of all colors can hold hands and and live in harmony and peace. And a lot of people who hear that feel like that day has come. That day has arrived for them. And so, again, warm fuzzies, all good. But I have to speak to this a little bit because what a number of people in our movement have been speaking to is the fact that there is a growing frustration over the whitewashing of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You have a man here who was imprisoned 29 times. You have a man here who was single-handedly probably one of the most influential people in terms of gathering and protesting. If there was an issue, he was in that state, he was in that city, he was bringing cameras, he was bringing media attention, he was getting people involved, he had people from all states coming in to help him and to help the other people that he was working with to bring attention to and shine lights on issues that ranged from garbage workers' rights to Chicago housing disparities, poverty, redlining, all of these things. The way that we currently view him and teach him is whitewashed, and it's actually a bit dangerous because it gives us the opportunity to ignore the work that he started so that we don't see it to completion. Now, how amazing is that? So here on Speaking of Racism, I do this little thing where I say, speaking of racism, and so on and so forth, and I share whatever. So today, 
it's speaking of racism. We've taken a civil rights icon and we have actually used his words to quiet the movement that continues under his banner. We have people who feel comfortable and confident and arrogant enough to sit on platforms, in media, on radio, on television, even in our government, who feel emboldened enough to take his words and to shame the people who are currently doing the work that he started or that he continued or that he carried out and wanted others to continue. So we've got to talk about this and we've got to talk about history and learning history and the importance of understanding history and understanding that today, if MLK Jr. was here and he was doing exactly what he was doing back in the 60s, he would be accused of being a poverty pimp. He would be accused of being all sorts of things that people like to throw at at modern activists today. It's nothing new. Same old story. And so one thing that stood out to me and the reason that I'm sharing this beyond just the fact that it's MLK Day here um, is as I was watching these videos with my children, I'm learning as well. I'm 41. I'm white. I grew up in predominantly white spaces. You'll probably get tired of hearing me say that because I say it a lot. But I say it to paint a picture. And the picture is this. I grew up with a very limited history a very limited understanding, and a very limited knowledge. So my experience base of of interacting with, knowing, growing up with people of color, almost nil. And likewise, my schools, my good, expensive, private schools, didn't really teach beyond, yeah, there was the civil rights movement, and yeah, Martin Luther King Jr., he did this thing where he gave a speech, and he was awesome, and wasn't it horrible how backwards we were back then, but we're all good now, and let's just move forward. And and so I was able within the vacuum of my own ignorance to develop a history in my mind. And one of those involved the narrative of the North versus the South. And so this is something that I want to start the dialogue on. Noah and I will touch on this briefly, but in no way is it a really deep dive. I will be digging into it a lot more as time goes on here. But my son even said, so while we were watching this video, there was a point in the history where Martin Luther King was in Chicago and they were fighting for housing rights fair housing, and they were doing marches through neighborhoods. And the hatred and the vitriol was unbelievable. And it was interesting because when I said to my son, oh yeah, this is in Chicago, because he was shocked by it. And he had already watched the footage of Selma and watched the footage of these police, you know, gassing the protesters and pummeling them and attacking them. But Chicago stood out. And he said, mom, but isn't that the North where we fought against slavery. And so in his young mind, he is connecting, you know, slavery with racism and and kind of putting things together on his own. And so I said, yes, that's a very good observation. So let me ask you a question. Do you think that the only telltale sign of racism is that a state had slavery? And he said, well, no. And so we started talking about that a little bit, but it speaks into today's topic as well. So even my young child was processing through this and somehow has accepted this narrative like, wait a second, we were with the good guys. We were on the good side. And it was so interesting because Noah talks about how Chicago is known as one of the most racially segregated cities to this day. And when I was watching Dr. King talk after being in Chicago, he said that he hadn't seen anything like this, that in Mississippi, in Alabama, in places that the 
Klan owned and operated, where you had governors and police chiefs and people just to the bone horrifying racists, you know, on this spectrum here that we like to use. And he said he experienced nothing like what he experienced in Chicago when he was there. Now, maybe some of you who are listening to this this is no news to you. You grew up in the North. You grew up with the same narrative I grew up with. And you understand that racism is just as prominent in the North as it was in the South. That's great. Everybody's different. I only speak for myself here. But for those of you who are listening and who are wondering and thinking, huh, really? Prominent racism in the North? What's that all about? These are the questions that people need to start asking and the answers you will find in history. And so I'm going to encourage you this year to do your work, do the work. You're going to hear me say that a lot. Go out, study history, listen, learn. And as you do this, you're going to begin to see why we are where we are today, and hopefully be able to gain insights into how to move on from here. How to carry Dr. King's legacy and vision forward. You're listening to Speaking of Racism, the podcast dedicated to frank, honest, and respectful discussions about race and racism in the U.S. I'm your host, Jen Kinney. Pull up a chair and let's talk. Special thanks to Grapes for the music. The song is I Don't Know featuring Jay Lang. I do believe that these discussions should be had offline, but, but they don't. And so with us having them the way we have them on social media, this this actually helps me. It helps me focus. It helps me understand where a mindset may be that I can reach out in a different way. Maybe, you know, someone may be that person where I don't have to use data. You, for example, I didn't have to use data to show my humanity. Mm -hmm. you, you got it. And I think that's the key element of social media is finding someone who gets it. You know, like the like maybe you 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 worked out for maybe a, a week or so or maybe a month and then you go get that massage that release of pressure off of your shoulders that that heavy sigh that comes along with that that's what you represent or you know you you've been worrying you've been uh pacing back and forth because your your kid said he or she was was going to be at the park but they're not home now and you've you've already called the police and the police said that there's nothing they can do until the you know child's missing 24 hours or so and then a child walks into the house un unscathed, unhurt. Nothing happened to him. They probably stopped by a friend's house and fell asleep on the way home, but then came home. The the parents dropped him off. And that that breath of fresh air, you get like, huh, oh, my son, my yeah. daughter, home. You know, you, you feel better. When when we hit on humanity, when you don't have to present data or for somebody else when they don't have to hide their blackness or they, they don't have to hide their Native Americanness or their Asianness or their Latinoness, you you feel so much better. You 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 lifted the spirit of that person. Because for in, in mm -hmm. most instances, when you're not given that freedom to have a any discussion, B to have a discussion about yourself, it's it's a it's a breath of fresh air when you get to have it with somebody that truly understands. And then that helps your fight 
I stay active. That helps you keep a sense of this is bigger than me uh, on the path. And you don't have to hide behind your color. You don't have to hide behind your words. You can live your truth and you can live it with someone that you consider a friend. I can so relate as a parent to that panic and that weight and that feel. And and when you said like, and then your kid walks in the door, it's just like, oh, I can take that deep breath. To think that these touch points within humanity provide that. And then that is a building block toward, you know, not just unity, but also strength and courage to go out and fight. To me, that is just, that's an amazing picture for me, you know, to to think of it that way. I could go in a number of directions here, but something that I've been wanting to unpack is, you know, as somebody growing up as a Northerner, I always looked at the South, you know, I had like this very basic history lesson in school growing up. And I always thought of the South as the racist ones. I just thought, oh, the South was racist. We fought the war to end slavery. So in my mind, like in the North, we didn't have racism. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because something that I've been exploring is how has that further insulated people from getting in touch with the fact that racism is real? that it exists. And it's something that needs to be addressed and deconstructed. For me, the mm-hmm. idea of, oh, the South, that's where Jim Crow was. That's where these things happened, you know? Mm-hmm. And so to hear your story about how going to California and being in Northern California and not really expecting to experience that mm-hmm. is really interesting. And I was listening to NPR on the way home today, and it was a show called Freakonomics. So this guy was talking about how they were actually studying searches in the Google search engines and how they were gathering data on racist searches. Even he said, he said surprisingly, because this was surprising in his mind as well, that they found uh, a pretty heavy dose of like racist searches within Michigan northern states that were not really expected to be racist, you know, and and it just, it again, kind of confirmed for me, you know, like, what is it about this narrative between the North and the South and, and how that sort of plays into our perceptions and misperceptions mm-hmm. of of racism in the country? I thought it was interesting that then even in these Google searches, this existed. It it does. That's why I told my mother that when I went down south for college, I'd be okay. Because the thing about it, just like in California, when people show you that they're racist, when they when they have the symbols, when they have the the mindset and the symbols, and they practice it, then you know where not to go. But up north, it's completely different because it's covert racism that you have to deal with. So, for example, Chicago, we. The great migration that happened uh, to Chicago when Blacks came up from the South and hit the South of Chicago, we were not told to go anywhere else in Chicago. It was redlined to the degree where we stayed South. White people moved up North, uh, the Northern parts of Chicago, a little bit out uh, Southwest and a little bit Northwest. And then when too many Blacks came, they created all of these suburbs that surround Chicago. And that was for the benefit of white people. Now, what happened with Black people is, and they say Chicago still to this day was one of the most segregated cities. You couldn't go past train tracks uh, in certain areas. You can't 
you can't go to uh, this neighborhood in Chicago called Bridgeport. And that's where a lot of mm -hmm. uh, the Irish live. And they would literally beat black people for going into Bridgeport, where then if the Bridgeport folks came and went to Bronzeville, which was historically black, they they could mingle and do whatever they wanted to do. But Chicago is so segregated that it started to affect the policy that was here. So in that red line, and you couldn't go to this part of Chicago or that part of Chicago because you would have to pay this much more than your white counterpart to live there. And then you had to deal with the racism that was there. And then you had to deal with the police that would come and, and help out with that racism that was there. You just stayed in your local area, which was predominantly black or predominantly Latino, because you know you couldn't get to where you wanted to go. So policies affect the North. The government, the local policy, um, the local politicians affect the black populace and the white populace as someone in the South would affect Jim Crow. So it's it's here. We just don't discuss it on the bigger scheme of, of racism as we would Jim Crow or as we would with Black Lives Matter with police and black uh, communities being jostled together to create this Black Lives Matter movement. We don't discuss redlining and segregation to that degree. And we haven't discussed segregation since desegregation. And that was um, at a time when it was, you know, the most racist as well in the South. But segregation here in Chicago and redlining in Chicago still keeps the policies to this day where Black people intuitively know where they cannot go. They They don't go to the north side of Chicago because they consider that too much for them. So then you have the socioeconomic path of that and then the educational component of that as well. So you you your school, like I was saying before, my high school is not better than Naperville High because Naperville High, of course, they have the rich, richer parents and they have two parent homes and they have uh, yachts and they have these students were driving the cars in their mom and dad Benzes, if not their own Benzes, because they have so much money that compiles into Naperville that it gives itself into their schooling system. And therefore, they can have multiple restaurants in the school. They can have Olympic-sized swimming pools for their swim classes, while we have, you know, maybe a pool that can get up to 10 feet because, you know, our public dollars don't amass to the amount of how much their dollars amass. So it's 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 there. It's overt, though. It's covert i'm sorry it's not as overt as the south is but it is it is in the north it there is racism and now that people are free to move about the country where they always have been you will get people that would believe how they believe in california or people that are from california that would move to michigan that would move to illinois or would move to wisconsin and interact with people who were born in wisconsin and illinois and michigan and still be that way and make it you know, more racist, if that's a word, uh, than what it used to be, just because of the fact that we had a black president uh, or, you know, there are more black people moving into the neighborhood. So now we, we're going to act on that racism. At first, it was just an ideal because only we lived in this community. But now that we have Latinos and, and Iranians and black people moving into these neighborhoods, we have to we have to push this this sentiment out. And so many people are being caught up in, in that now, especially in the northern parts, because that's that's how they always felt. That's that's just the way of the world for them. So when when that change happened, when that shift happened, that these neighborhoods would change, now the the covert racism becomes overt. And now they show you that, oh yeah, we were just as racist, if not more racist, than most people in the South.
Yeah, that's really interesting to think that, you know, because on some level, my I'm of the opinion, and, and I'll go back to social media here, where I love that we are using social media the way that we are now because people are able to share their day-to-day stories. And so you can't deny anymore that people are having the police called on them for ridiculous things, right. you know, and that, that this, that this racism and this prejudice is impacting people's lives regularly. This isn't something that we've gotten past. And so for me, I I've been of the, the thought that like, well, now we're just getting to see what has always existed. Mm -hmm. But what you're even saying is your sense is that as areas change and as people start to integrate more that this latent covert sort of racism is actually bubbling up to the surface and coming out exactly in different ways. That to, makes so much sense to me. It's to your point of how people are being, how people are calling the cops because now instead of them wanting to, because maybe they, they, they may be in their elder years or they don't want to seem racist. So they will call the cops. That's a racist practice in itself because they know that police are going to justify Well, why is this black person in this neighborhood? Show me your key card. Show me your your key that lets you into this building. Show me your pass. Show me your papers. And that was exactly how slaves were treated. Why are you on this road this this late at night? Show me your papers who you belong to. Therefore, that is the only way I can justify why you would be in this area that's predominantly white. That is and and I don't understand why people don't see it, but that is the most racist thing that that it, it tears the soul out of a black person. To, to have to explain to you that I'm human, that this is America, that, that, you know, outside of my color, why can't black people live here? You know, like why, why is, is it a, is it a racial caste system or is it just a caste mm -hmm. system? Because if you're saying that I, I can't be rich enough, that's also you saying that that's racism because you believe that black people can't have or can't amount or amass this much money. Um, if you're saying that I shouldn't be here because of my color, that's also racism because now you're just saying this is just for white people and for white rich people. So then poor white people shouldn't be able to be here, but they are like, it, it doesn't matter how much white people are making right. and live in this, in this area. It's the fact that you just don't want me to be in this area, but you don't know anything about me. So now that goes back to the, I got to put my data before my race or my, my humanity because now you're looking right. at me as less than human. And every instance that has happened in this country where cops were being called on black people just for them being people, it, it takes us back two or 300 years in this country. It, it hurts. It really hurts. And we hear those stories, we see these stories and we see them live on social media. And it's like, you know, like you reopen a scab that just scabbed over. It just scabbed over. And you know, like no more blood is going to come out of there. You know, no bacteria can go inside because that's what the scab does. It protects. But then America just, just rips it right off. Every time. It's, it's not just one-offs. It is almost weekly at this point. And that, right. like for a people to see, like you can say you love us as, as countrymen and countrywomen, but you show us something so different every time we breathe. And it's like, can we, can can we have? I like, I don't know what we're asking for at this point. Like, it, what what more needs to be said? 
And that that's the right. hurtful part of how the South and the North are completely different because up here it again it's it's covert. But down there it's overt. But then it's becoming one now. It doesn't matter. It's becoming more overt, no matter if you live in the north or the south now. It it it's it's just the way it is. I think that is so important to understand that. You know, for people listening to this podcast who are curious about this, you know, it's like I hear a lot of times I hear people saying, Oh, the media, they make everything look bigger than it really is. And they're blowing everything out of proportion and they want to divide us and blah, blah, blah. And so I'm frustrated a lot of times because I spend a lot of time and energy trying to speak to white people to to say, open your eyes, look at history, look around you, ask yourself some tough questions. Ask yourself, if you're a white person, do you live in a predominantly white space? If you do, do you think that's okay? Do you think that the segregated living that, that we tend to see in the U.S. is problematic or indicative of anything? Are you interested in digging deeper and learning more? And I just think it's so important, particularly for, you know, those of us in the North who have bought into this idea that this isn't being made worse by political forces. It is being unearthed and it is being exposed. And so we have a choice. We can say, I don't want to hear about it and I don't want to deal with it and, and carry on. Or we can say, you know what? Something has to change here and we have to take a look at this and we have to start listening and opening ourselves to understanding that there is way more to this than we would like to admit. Covert racism. Why are we seeing it emerge in more of an overt way now? People who see this, you have a choice and your choice is to do something or not, but it is a choice. Right. Indeed. And going back to what you touched on, how I guess most white people don't feel it pertains to them. The thing about a white person that says it wouldn't pertain to them, it's either they're speaking from great comfort, meaning that, you know, where they live, they've they've said it unto themselves. I built myself brick by brick. Uh, you know, I've conditioned myself and made myself who I am. And that's why I'm allowed this space that I met. And therefore, all of the stuff that influences people on the outside of me does not pertain to me. So they'll see, again, someone that will do something racist, like call the cops. So they'll see someone that will do something more overt, like drag a body uh, of a black person on a vehicle until that oh. person has died. And they'll say to themselves, that's racism. I don't do mm. that. I don't practice that. I don't live that. And in doing that, they justify themselves to say that since I don't do it, what happens in that same mindset is to say the majority of us don't do it. But the right. thing about racism is not that you have to point it out. It's not that you have to say, oh, it exists. Well, you do have to say that. It's not to say that that's where it stops. You know people right. in your family that are overt racist. Right. You know people in your family that have said stuff be it to a television show, be it to one of your coworkers, be it to a person that you brought home as your wife or your husband. 
they've said things mm -hmm. to your black husband or your black wife or your uh, Latino husband or Latino wife, Asian husband, Asian wife, Native American husband or Native American wife. And you didn't feel comfortable in that. But for years prior to you knowing that person of color, your family has said stuff that's been off script and racist and have done things that have been overtly racist. And it's on you to change that atmosphere because your husband or wife who's of color can't. They're new to the family. You grew up in that family. You were surrounded by everyone in that family and you knew and probably said some hurtful stuff until you changed your mind. So now you got to change your 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 family's mind. It takes you to do because if your husband or wife did it, they would fall back into the overt racism because it's comfortable. That's how they grew up. That's what they say to themselves. This is how America was, they say to themselves. This is how um, it will always be, they say to themselves. So if they psychologically take themselves out of the equation to say like, I, well, I'm not as racist as I used to be, or you know, now I'm a bigot, or I will change, that's a lie. And, and people of color are tired of calling people on these lies because the more we do that, the more they throw it back in our faces to say that calling out their racism is racism. And we can oh. that that happens in, if I tell you, you stepped on my toe, and you say, but your shoe is the reason I stepped on your toe and it makes my toe hurt too. Then, then why did I just tell you that you stepped on my toe? If not, how, how are you in more pain than I am? And you're on my toe. So for you to tell me that you're also in pain negates the fact that I'm in pain altogether. And that's what happens with the back and forth of the communication that we're trying to have where we're discussing race. Black people are called race, racist for bringing up racism. So the, 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 the definition of racist has changed completely mm -hmm. and racism has changed. And, and for that fact that when we talk about it, when you and I talk about it, it's, it's, we understand the magnitude of it. We understand how it is, what it is, what it smells like, what it feels like. But for most people who are now into this discussion as white people, um, they, they've never had to think about it to this degree. And that's why it hurts because to them, it's like, okay, well now you're saying that it, you know, I'm a part of it and I had nothing to do with it. But again, they grew up in a bubble to where they don't understand what's going on with black people or any people that'll be of color because they have lived in white spaces their entire lives. So to them, it's an attack. You're attacking me by telling me the differences and, and racism that people go through or the differences of people and the racism that they go through by my people or people that look like me. And I can tell you by far, we as the Irish had absolutely nothing to do with black people. We as the Anglo-Saxons had nothing to do with black people. We as the Italians had nothing to do with black people. We as the Romanians, the Albanians, the, all, everyone from Europe had nothing to do with black people. And it's just like this, this past the hot potato feel because now it's burning my hand. I'm going to pass it to someone else. I didn't have anything to do with it. Black people are the way they are because they did it to themselves. Yes. They brought themselves over here in ships. They chained themselves. They got themselves out of slavery and then they told themselves that they'll be okay just living right there. So me as a white person, I, I'm okay with where I'm at, even though where I'm at had absolutely everything to do with how this country was built. Now, my ancestors had nothing to do with slavery. We were immigrants that came over here, which is why we also don't like for other immigrants to come over here. Like these, these are things that we hear 
as people of color and we we try to envision the rationale like what would make someone think like what what would justify you being okay with racism you being okay with immigration or the the policy of immigration like i i i'm neither here nor there in the entire fight for immigration i'm neither here nor there in the practices of racism because i can't practice it but i understand racism so Mm-hmm. When 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 everything is thrown back in our faces because someone feels a certain way because of how things truly are, that's a person that doesn't want to deal with reality. That's a person that almost, in some cases, isn't ready for that conversation because they're going to feel attacked. And when you feel attacked, you don't want to talk. You know, the last thing you want to do is have any form of discussion with someone that you feel is attacking you. So that's why a lot of our conversations are shut down instantly on Charles's page or on your page or just in general with someone talking to their family. And this falls right back in line with someone bringing home uh, uh, a wife or a spouse of color um, because now they can't say anything. They, they feel even more less of a family member or they feel attacked now by their family when everything that their family used to do felt comfortable. I applaud, you know, people like you, uh, other white people that have married someone of color that understands how it was that they they could probably even see it in themselves like, oh, I did used to do that. I did used to say that. I was that way. I did feel attacked when someone spoke their truth. And now I don't anymore. That awakening that happens with white people mm-hmm. is just the same awakening that happens with black people when it is forced upon us because racism is. It's not like we welcome it. We don't want it. I mean, we'd want to live like anyone else wants to live. We we would love to live like the majority where it was in the back of our mind racism was, but it's predominant. The only thing we can do is talk to our kids and tell them they're made, like we we are such the great instillers of hope for this country. That I, I don't know who else could be. We We want our kids to be branded in so much truth before they even get to experience humanity that it's it's almost sickening we tell them what to look out for with police we we train it's almost like a training camp we sit them down i don't have kids myself but i've done this with my nieces and nephews i've done this with my little cousins and my little brother it it's it's like a it's like a a, a tale of two cities pretty much like i i don't know what white parents tell their kids growing up when 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 they're interacting with cops or if they ever tell their kids anything about interacting with cops, but little black girls, little black boys have to hear, don't, you cannot, don't ever think, call me first, don't talk. And then you have to go through the motions of that. Someone has to act as a horrible police officer to you as not to get you riled up because your pain points, when you want to lash out at the person that's acting like that bad cop, your pain points are what may make you die. Your silence may make you die. Your participation may make you die. So now there are no rules. Like literally, we told you don't do this and that person didn't do it and he still got killed by a cop. We told you don't say this and that person didn't say it and was killed by a cop. We told you to wait till you get to the police station and say that you would want to speak to a lawyer, say that you want to call home and speak with a parent. And you never made it to the police station because you were killed by a cop. There's nothing more we can say. There's nothing more we can do. We don't know what to do or say. When we're stuck at that crossroad, Mm -hmm. either seek help through therapy or we become crazy. 
not crazy mm. as in I'm trying to diminish how people may become, but the press, depression is high in the black community, but it's a very low number of people going to get help for it. Um, anxiety is high in the black community, but it's a very low number of people going to get help for it because we believe upon ourselves. And I don't know where this came from, probably just a majority and probably our elders going to a therapist is weak. Mm. But the very fact that we need to go, <laughs> it makes it like even weaker. Those who have a a huge burden placed on their lives by choice to be police officers are sending us to therapy and graves, if not jail. Mm. So we don't know who to trust. We, we you know, they, they say, uh, you know, well, until you solve black on black crime, you'll never understand police. And it's like, no, well, crime is statistically just happening where it's supposed to happen. Like there's, there's no just black crime. There's no just white crime, no Latino crime. Crime is crime. But we have to justify it first to talk about our humanity because we can't say anything against the police department because then we would be less than humans for doing so. Because those are the people mm. you call for help, right? No, it's to the point we don't even call them. And they, there's no right. snitching policy and there's no snitching rule. It's because we don't want them to come and investigate something that is going to turn out worse for everyone involved and that it may kill somebody. And that is not a way to live in a country of this magnitude, of, of this greatness. At the end of the day, we, we've been so downtrodden that you know, we, we stay to ourselves and we try to stay above water. That's why you see so many dance videos with African-Americans and you see so many positive uh, songs and why we share so many positive images of ourselves. Because if we don't, we are going to be given over to that anxiety and to that depression because the same cycle that's rinsing and repeating itself is still here. And what do you do with that? How do you unpack that? How do you put that in a suitcase so it's not on your mind? You don't. You have to be okay with it. And that's sad to us that we have to be okay with the bare minimum treatment of humanity. <laughs> 